back to um, the book of Ecclesiastes. You can turn to chapter 7 as we pick up there. Uh, as we mentioned last week, uh, we, we once again are given a lesson about perspective uh, because we all have one. We all have a, 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 a way of viewing uh, situations in life, of viewing or judging certain things or certain events in our lives. We all look at certain things in certain ways. And we've said that that makes a, it's very important, makes a huge difference uh, in our lives. And so Solomon asks this question of his audience, what does a godly perspective look like in a fallen world? Uh, that's really what he's been doing for a number of chapters, is just talking about as we, as we look out into the world, as we see things and observe things and experience things uh, going on in the world at large, going on in specific circumstances in our own lives, and even things that struggles that we have in our own hearts and in our own minds and with our own uh, walk with the Lord, how, how do we assess these things? What kind of perspective should we have? And so Solomon warns his readers about having a godless perspective, about having what we might call a, a humanistic worldview where people live and experience these struggles every day and yet do not take uh, any consideration uh, regarding God uh, and his control over all things in, in this life. Uh, Solomon uh, challenges us to, to see life as an unfolding of God's plan and his purposes, uh, to see all that happens to us in life as coming from the hand of a loving uh, God and sovereign creator and, and Lord. So we started into chapter 7, and we mentioned that uh, when we get to chapter 7, there's a proverbial a uh, shift to the proverbial. Um, uh, back in chapter 6, we noted that Solomon makes the point there. He, he talks about materialism. He talks about riches and wealth and uh, makes the, 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 the point that uh, having those things is not necessarily a good thing uh, for us, may not be the best thing for us. Again, it's all about perspective. It's about how we view material things and how we view uh, prosperity. Uh, but we know, based on what Solomon says, and we know really from our own experience that there is a deception in riches, uh, that riches and prosperity can blind us, that they can distort our view uh, sometimes as to the way things really are. And so Solomon argues for this in ch- chapter 6, that wealth may not be the best thing for us. Uh, but here in chapter 7... Uh, Solomon approaches this discussion from sort of a different direction and argues that adversity and affliction are not always or necessarily a bad thing. Uh, that hardship is, is not the worst thing for you. And again, it's about, it's about perspective uh, because we often don't have a godly perspective about life. And so we tend to, on one hand, we tend to chase, chase after the prosperity and the riches and the materialism while at the same time running away from adversity and pain. So as we come to chapter 7, we, we mentioned that there's a term that Solomon uses here. It's found a number of times in these first, uh, particularly in these verse 14 verses, and it's the Hebrew word that we, it's translated as good, uh, or in a, in a comparative sense, it's translated as better, that something is better than something else or something is literally more good 
and something else. And the good that Solomon describes in chapter 7 is compared to what we perceive to be good. So again, he's still talking about this issue of perception. What is our perception of riches? What is our perception of materialism? And what is our perception specifically in these verses about adversity and affliction and sorrow and pain and death? So let me ask you a question. What is on your list of good things in life? What is on your list of good things in life? Or what is it that comes to your mind when you think about enjoyment or, or relaxation or pleasure? What are some of those things that would be on your list? You can throw out some examples. What's on your list of good things? All right, gelato. Yeah, it doesn't matter what flavor it is. Yeah, if you've been to Italy, it's all good. <laughs> There's not a bad gelato, though. We might have had a bad one there. Yeah, yeah, pistachio is bad. Pistachio is bad. Okay, Trader Joe's dark chocolate-covered almonds must be on the list of good things. All right, anybody else? So just to one-up you on that right here, yeah. Love those. What's on your list of good things? All right, what? Candy corn. Oh, okay. All right. Going out what? Going out with your spouse. Okay, family. Family make your list, hopefully. Going to the beach, right? Warm ocean breeze in Florida. A crackling fire on a cold winter day. What's on your list of good things? What's that? What do you say? High horsepower. High horsepower. Yeah, a speedometer that says 250 and actually means it. Right? Yeah, it's not kilometers. Yeah. <laughs> a Starbucks card that will never run out, right? You just keep giving it to them, and they just say, you, you still have a balance. You still have a balance. You still have a balance. So March Madness in college basketball. Uh, these are just some things. Time to read and study. So I like reading and studying, but sometimes it's just time. Time to do some of those things, right? My wife, my family, those things would be on certainly on the list. So here's the thing. You, you may know what you enjoy in life because that's basically what you're, just, what you're telling. These are the things that I enjoy. This is the question, though. Do you truly know what is good for life? What is good for life? Uh, notice Solomon's question back at the end of chapter 6 in verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man during his lifetime, during the few years of his feudal life? The, the implied answer to Solomon's question is that nobody does but God, right? People know what they enjoy, but they don't always know what is good for them. So who knows what is good for a man in the few years that he lives on this planet? The answer, only God really knows that. Only God knows. So you think about where you are today. You think about the fact that you're in this church, you think about the fact that you're in the particular job you're in, or maybe you're in a situation where you're, you're without a job. Maybe you're in a particular relationship, or maybe you're out of a particular relationship. And then think about where you were 10 years ago. <laughs> so think about everything, where, you, where God has brought you today, and then just think back, maybe not even that long, but where you were years ago, and this is the point, 10 years ago or however long ago you, you want to go back, 10 years ago you knew what you liked and what you wanted. 
if I would have asked you that question then, you would have had a list of things, right? I'd say, what, what do you like? Oh, well, these are all the things that I like. But you probably did not know what was good for you, right? So at any point in life, someone can be asked that question, and they can give a list of a number of things about what brings them pleasure, what brings them enjoyment, what brings them satisfaction, but do they know what is best for them? Do they, do they know what is good for them, what is good for a man in his life? So you probably didn't know what was good for you. I didn't know what was good for me, but God did, and that is why God ignored your plan and followed his plan. That's why he looked at your list of all the things that, these are the things that I enjoy, and these are all the things I like, and God just said, well, <laughs> but that's not what's best for you. That's not necessarily what is good for you. And so your list of what is good and God's list of what is good may not always line up. And that's because our goal usually involves comfort. <laughs> right, Hagen does. <laughs> right? <laughs> Chocolate-covered almonds, family, fires, fast cars. Right? I mean, our, our attempt, our goal, our attempt at satisfaction usually involves comfort, whereas God's goal always involves Christ-likeness, always involves Christ-likeness, always involves spiritual growth, always involves maturity in the faith, and haagen and almonds and sports and those other things that are on that list don't, wouldn't always get us going in that direction, right? <laughs> Would not always lead us in the direction of Christ-likeness. Or spiritual maturity. So Solomon wants to show us a whole new way of looking at life under the sun. He wants to show us a whole new way of looking at life as we experience life outside of the Garden of Eden and this side of eternity. And that's what Ecclesiastes is all about. You might even say it's an applicational commentary on Genesis 3. It's an applicational commentary on Genesis 3. That helps us to understand the effects of the fall and how to live in light of God's truth in the redemptive work of Christ in our lives. To gain his perspective about life, a perspective that the world doesn't have and that we would never arrive at apart from what God has revealed to us in his word and through his son. So what we have here is proverbial wisdom for a a biblical mindset, a, a better mindset. And specifically in verses 1 to 14, Solomon presents, and I've sort of reworked, uh, we were kind of just kind of working through verse by verse last week, but I've gone back and, and kind of re, sort of, I guess, arranged or packaged this. But uh, we're going to call it six perspectives that are good for a man. Six perspectives that are good for a man. Six perspectives that are contrary to the way that the world thinks and sees things, but, but perspectives that are good for, for life. And the first one we talked, we spent most of our time talking about last week, and that is this, that it is good for you, it is good for a person, it is good for a man, it is good for a woman, it is good for a child to have a right perspective about death and its certainty. That's good for us. It's good for you to have a right perspective about death and its certainty. Verse 1, beginning in chapter 7. A good name is better than a good ointment, and the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, because that is the end of every man, and the living takes it to heart. 
Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. The mind of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. So it's good for a person to have a right perspective about death. And notice how he starts out. He just says a good name is, is better than a good ointment, which we said that, that reference there to ointment is probably most likely a reference to the ointments and the oils and perfumes that were used to prepare a corpse for burial. So the point is that throughout a person's lifetime, they, they gain or obtain a, a reputation, whether it's a good one or a bad one. And that reputation long outlasts their material abundance or the fragrance of their burial ointments or perfumes. That is to say that a good reputation endures. We mentioned this, uh, this uh, phrase, this uh, statement. It goes like this. Every man has three names, one that his parents gave him, one that others call him, and one that he acquires himself. And when a person acquires a good name, uh, what, what Solomon refers to here, uh, that is a big deal. Because a good name is influential, and a good name endures way beyond our lifetime. So a good name is better than a good ointment. This, this is an important perspective for us to have as we, as we live life in a fallen world. Then he says this at the end of verse 1, And the day of one's death is better than the day of one's birth. And we said that's true because at death, if your life has been well lived, your name or your reputation is sealed. That is to say that you can't do anything once you're dead to negatively affect your reputation or your name. The life is over and that reputation is sealed. And when a man or a woman has so lived to earn a good reputation, the day of his or her death can be a time of honor. Then in verse 2, Solomon says this, that mourning is better than feasting or merriment. He says it is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. And that, that reference to the house of mourning was simply uh, a, 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 a reference to the, the home of the person that had died, the home of the deceased where the family and friends would, would go and mourn uh, the, the, the departure of their loved one. So this is about going to a funeral. And we said it's, it, it, it's, it's obvious that we don't enjoy funerals as much as we enjoy parties. Uh, some of you might have gone to a funeral just yesterday. There's some of you in here that went, went to a funeral yesterday of a man uh, who has been struggling with, with cancer for some time. It's not as pleasant to go to a funeral, but what Solomon says here is that when you go to parties, you don't think very deeply. <laughs> um, you do a lot more serious and sober thinking when you're at a funeral. Because death, death causes us to, to think uh, seriously about life. It, it causes us to grow up. It confronts us with our, the brevity of our lives. It confronts us about those things that are... It, it forces us to, to think about and weigh out what is really serious and what is really frivolous what what are the big rocks and what are the little rocks in life and it causes us to think about a person's influence over others right because when you go to a funeral what you hear consistently at funerals is is the way in which that person impacted other people 
So again, this it's, it's about it's about perspective, and it's 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 important for us to to understand that it's it's better to go through times of sorrow like that because because to not go through those times encourages deception. Because we're blinded sometimes to those things. We're blinded to the serious things of life. So feasting, Solomon says, can lead to self-deception and, and, and can lead to unrealistic thinking. So a funeral, he says, is better than a festival. And then he continues in verse 3, Sorrow is better than laughter, for when a face is sad, a heart may be happy. And this term for sorrow, it's, it can be translated as grief, but there's almost a sense of grief plus anger. It's a it's a um, a, a bitter grief. Uh, even can be used in the context of pro- provocation. It's like some someone is provoking you. It's not just sorrow, but it's if someone is provoking you in such a way that you're not only grieved but you're upset. <laughs> you're angry about it. He says sorrow. That kind of sorrow is better than laughter, which which is a term that can be just simply laughter, but it's usually used in the context of more of joking or even a sport, making light of things. So he says, yes, laughter is often good for the soul. We, we know that, and we know that Solomon wasn't against enjoyment because more, in more than one place already, he's talked about the need for us to enjoy the good gifts of life. So it's not that. Solomon's not downplaying that. He's just saying here that sorrow can do more good for the heart than laughter can. Because ultimately, a season of sorrow can lead to true gladness. It can open the heart to gladness. And it can lead to wisdom. Verse 4, the mind or the heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, while the mind of fools is in the house of pleasure. Again, the griefs of life and the grief of death are meant to drive us to think, Deeply, so Solomon says, "Don't avoid because we're bad about this. We're uh, we're bad about uh, avoiding sober reflection." But the whole book of Ecclesiastes is meant to make us reflect. <laughs> the whole point of Ecclesiastes is to make you stop and think. <laughs> and so Solomon's saying, "Don't avoid that." And we're busy about filling our lives with things. And sometimes I say, "There are some people, and I might be in this category, but we're, that are that look for distractions," you know. It's like I get started doing something, and it's almost like I'm looking for someone to interrupt me. Oh, do you, I'm sorry, Chris, what did you say? You know, it's like, like you're almost looking for someone to interrupt you because it's hard to sustain that effort and that thought, and especially over issues like this. At times, we fill our lives with all this activity and stuff, and we never really take time to think about the serious and important things, things with gravity. So don't jest, he says, and joke about death. But look death in the face and learn from it. Don't be preoccupied with it, but do take it seriously. So in all these verses, it's as if Solomon is asking, how can you live wisely in a Genesis 3 world if you don't think rightly about death? It's like, how can you do that? How How could you rightly think about life outside the Garden of Eden if you don't understand the concept of death and prepare for it? Because death is life's greatest certainty. You and I can live life ignoring God. We can deny that there's even such a thing as sin. We can, we can, we can uh, 
believe that sin doesn't really have any consequences and that none of these things matter, but you cannot get around death. It's one of the reasons, I think, why we have Genesis chapter 5. Because we have Genesis 3, where, the, where man and, and falls into sin, and then just two chapters later, we have essentially um, one obituary after another, after another, after another. It's just this guy lived so many years and had a son, and then he died. And this guy had so many years, and then he had a son, and he died. And it's just death, 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 death. All that to say that what God said about sin and death, he meant it, right? <laughs> Death will come. So that you cannot get around it. And, and interestingly, some churches back uh, years ago used to design their church building so that you would have to go through the cemetery to get to the front door of the church. <laughs> Imagine come, pulling up this morning and you're having to kind of, you know, sort of, <laughs> oh, you know, you're looking at the, what's said on there. When, did they, when, did they, when were they born? When did they die? You're having to see that on your way in to, to, the, to, to worship. I, I assume the reason that churches did that was to make the point that death is unavoidable. So that when you come to worship, just keep in mind that this is serious stuff. Serious stuff. Uh, when Joshua and David were on their deathbed, they, they used this is a, in the Old Testament, they used this phrase, I am going the way of all the earth. That's, that's how they described their death. Because what they were saying is, I'm going the way of everybody. I mean, everybody's going this way. I mean, I'm going the way of all the earth. Every, every man and woman and child will face death. It will come to us all. And the obvious question comes then, is it wise to spend your whole life living as if the one thing that you know for sure will happen won't? <laughs> now, for those of us who are Christians, we, you know, we understand Christ has removed the sting of death. Uh, yet death is still a doorway, right, that we have to pass through. I mean, we get it. We, we know all the other things that Scripture says about death. We, we understand that death is a defeated foe. Uh, it's a, some have called it a toothless lion. Uh, it's not a danger to believers, but it is real. And Solomon says you, you must prepare to face it rightly. So I don't like funerals any more than you do, okay, I don't. I don't like them. I mean, when I'm when I'm at a funeral, I'm sitting there, and it's it's you know, death is an enemy. Death. It, it never seems natural, <laughs> you know, when you're sitting at a funeral. You're thinking to yourself, in some respects, that this isn't right. This just isn't the way it should be. And Solomon again is addressing the question: What is good for you? What is good for you? And it is good for you and it is good for me to have a realistic and a truly Christian perspective about death and its certainty. Uh, History tells us the story of the French philosopher Voltaire, who was one of the most aggressive antagonists of Christianity. Uh, He wrote a number of things to undermine the church. He once said of Jesus, quote, "'Curse the wretch. In 20 years... Christianity will be no more. My single hand will destroy the edifice it took 12 apostles to rear, end quote. <laughs> he also claimed that Christianity was a vanishing phenomenon. He said, quote, 100 years from my day, there will not be a Bible in the earth except one that is looked upon by an antiquarian curiosity seeker. That was 238 years ago. So, 
uh, vile man, uh, agnostic, and on his deathbed, a nurse, the nurse who attended him, was reported to have said, quote, for all the wealth of Europe, I would not see another atheist die. Just speaking of that, uh, those final moments of someone that has lived their life that way, and yet it's coming, right? This certainty of it. <laughs> she said, I, I would take all the wealth to not have to watch that again, to not have to watch someone die that is facing, about to face God. In fact, my, uh, Mike Payne, some of you know him in our church, but he's a retired police officer with uh, the Cobb County Police Department who has seen numerous people die. I mean, he's been there with people as they've taken their last breath. And I just remember we were at, actually at a funeral service for one of his family members. He did the, the service, did an excellent job. He's in that, in that realm. He is just so tactful and wise and compassionate. And, but he told me, he said, Joel, he said, I've seen a lot of people die and take their last breath. And he said, man, there is a world of difference between a Christian <laughs> and an unbeliever. So Voltaire had that experience. Very different from his experience, though, was that of D.L. Moody, <laughs> who on his deathbed said this, quote, I see earth receding and heaven is opening. God is calling me. <laughs> that was his last statement. John Wesley was once asked about the benefit of, of, of his work in, in, in the Methodist church and his preaching ministry in the lives of others, and he answered this, Our people die well. Our people die well. A physician who treated several of those in Wesley's denomination, Methodists, made the claim to John Wesley, quote, most people die, uh, die for fear of dying. <laughs> but I never met with such people as yours. They are none of them afraid of death, but are calm and patient and resigned to the last. So Solomon says, what is good for you? It's good for you to have a right perspective about death and the certainty of death. Secondly, he says this. It is good for a person. It is good for a man. It is good for a, a woman, a wife, a child to have a right perspective about the value of painful wisdom. The value of painful wisdom. Verse 5. It is better to listen to the rebuke of a wise man than for one to listen to the song of fools. And so... Solomon says here, basically, everybody's wa everybody wants to shape you. <laughs> everybody wants to change you. The wise man rebukes you to shape you for holiness. But the foolish man attempts to shape you for his own benefit. And his laughter and his joking and his hilarity, all of those things are useless. They're, they're hollow, even bothersome. And certainly short-lived, like thorn bushes, he says, that flare up quickly, but just as quickly die down, verse 6. For as the crackling of thorn bushes under a pot, so is the laughter of the fool, and this too is futility. So Solomon says, don't be deceived by the praise of fools. Don't be drawn in into that while at the very same time getting defensive when you are rebu rebuked and repro reproved by the wise. So Solomon says, listen, correction is a loving thing. Okay, again, this is not intuitive, <laughs> okay? This is not something that, this is not just, just common 
intense stuff out there in the world. I'm saying we need the Word of God to speak into our lives in this area. There is a benefit to loving correction. In fact, correction is a necessary grace in your life as a believer. You have to have it. You have to have it. And again, this wasn't new, right? I mean, a lot of what we've seen in Ecclesiastes is an echo of what's written in Proverbs. And in many cases, it's actually an echo of things that Solomon himself wrote in earlier days in the book of Proverbs, right? So you have a lot of the Proverbs written by Solomon at a time in his life in which he was younger. I mean, still a you know, middle-aged man, but younger and not as, not as much experience And so we have these kinds of statements. Solomon certainly, you know, let's say he wrote many of these. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of the fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man is he who listens to counsel. Proverbs 13, 1, a wise son accepts his father's discipline, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 15, 31, he he whose ear listens to the life-giving reproof will dwell among the wise. Life-giving reproof. Proverbs 27, verse 5. Better is open rebuke than love that is concealed. Faithful, he says in the next verse, are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. So Solomon knew these things as a younger man, but now as an older man, right? So he, he understood that, but it... As an older man now looking back over his life and having to acknowledge that he often ignored the reproofs, right? (laughs) And where did Solomon gravitate to in his latter years? He, He did not gravitate to putting himself under the voice of correction and reproof. Where where did he go? Where did he where did he gravitate? He gravitated to putting himself in situations and circumstances and relationships where people would tell him what he wanted to hear, (laughs) right? He was looking for affirmation in his sin, right? So there were times and seasons when Solomon was pursuing sin and he he was listening to the Song of Fools, right? He didn't want to put himself under that correction and that kind of critique and judgment. So these verses, even though... They're very similar to what, what Solomon penned in the book of Proverbs. It just seems, they just come across to me with greater, I want to say greater force, because now we have a guy who knew those very same truths, but who now on the backside of life is saying, that whole thing about the song of fools and the praise of fools, trust me, I've been there. I've been there. Foolishness. Foolishness to do that. So the reality is that we live in an escapist-type culture, right? We sort of flop down on the couch. We, we tune out our problems. We don't think very deeply. Uh, we think that these things are just going to somehow dissolve and go away. Uh, we, we, some of us, we, we create some sort of Internet fantasy world. We get absorbed in that. We're absorbed in all these entertainment kind of things, all kinds of forms of pleasure. We, we get drunk. We shoot up, all these things. Because we don't want to deal honestly with our problems. We don't want to let others in and, and allow others to see what is going on with us. And so we, we create these, these things and, and systems and structures in our life that keep people from doing that. From, first of all, even seeing what's there and knowing what's there. Secondly, 
even if they did see it, we don't want to put ourselves in a position where they actually could, could bring a correction. We don't want to listen to that. We don't want to listen to that correction or to be held accountable for the things that we do. But again, the question is not what do we want or what do we enjoy, right? The question is what is good for a man, right? That's the question that he's answering. What is good for a man? A convicting word or humor and hilarity that comes and goes as quickly as the pro- and the problem still remains. It's a flash in the pan. It was all oh, that's funny joke and all that. Then that disappears, and then we're still left with our problem, right? He's, Solomon's just saying, which, which is better for a man? Is it better for someone to come up and to just joke around with us and to get our minds off of these things, or is it more beneficial for someone to come to us and correct and reprove when that's needed? William Barrick says this in his commentary, quote, We become that to which we listen. The ear can be a golden gate for wisdom, knowledge, holiness, righteousness, and grace to enter, or it can become the dung gate for foolishness, ignorance, impurity, iniquity, and crudity. Solomon declares that the better path is the former, even if a rebuke appeals less than a song even to the saint's ear. Instead of drowning out the realities of life and death with music, humor, and feasting, the believer would do well to sit at the feet of a wise counselor who will not be reluctant to offer heart-strengthening admonition. That's what we need. We need to sit at times at the feet of wise counselors who are not not afraid to give us heart-strengthening correction. So the rebuke of a wise friend, the painful counsel that comes alongside and points out our foolishness, that opens the scriptures and exposes our ungodly ways of thinking and living. Sometimes it stings. Sometimes it's in the moment. It doesn't seem pleasurable and enjoyable, but it is what is good for a man. That is what is good for a man. Think about when David sinned and he was covering his sin, as is described in 2 Samuel chapters 11 and 12. What if Nathan, when Nathan the prophet came to him and brought, brought a rebuke, right, brought correction. But what if Nathan would have been the court jester rather than the representative of God? (laughs) What if he would have been the one there in the presence of David laughing and joking about what David had done rather than pointing out what David needed to hear? Jokes in that context would have been burn up, right, a flash in the pan. But Nathan's wise and faithful and loving words were enduring and invaluable. So what is good for you? It is good for you to have a right perspective about death and its certainty, and it is good for you to have a right perspective about the value of painful wisdom. And then thirdly, it is good for a person, it is good for you, it is good for me to have a right perspective about self-restraint. Self-restraint. Verse 7, for oppression makes a wise man mad and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning. Patience of spirit is better than haughtiness of spirit. Do not be eager in your heart to be angry, for anger resides in the bosom of fools. So we have a situation where there is oppression, where someone is abusing their power, and and we see it, and and Solomon says, and we're infuriated by it. In fact, he says here that it makes a wise man mad, 
not in the sense of being angry, but in the sense of being insane. So it's, this term mad is, is, is different than that we typically say a person is mad. We're saying that they're angry and upset. Actually, this term is, we use the term mad saying that person's, they're mad. They're out of their mind. They're insane. That's what Solomon says. You see this oppression and it makes a wise man crazy <laughs> because he sees it because that's the way life is, right? This side of Genesis 3, he sees it, but he wants to make it right. He wants to, to bring justice. And so what happens is this experience, this, this observation, the seeing this oppression, he says, makes at times a, what would be a gentle-hearted person so upset that they can't even think straight. And so they want to settle the injustice. So that's, that's part of what Solomon's describing. It's like he's giving us these various examples. So this one example is this, 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 uh, a picture of oppression. Then we also have a situation where a person is tempted by greed, right? A, a situation when they are tempted to accept a bribe. And so Solomon makes the statement that a bribe corrupts the heart, which may refer to our own heart, but also may refer to a time when the heart of a ruler perhaps or a judge is turned by rewards in exchange for his oppression of someone's enemy. So in other words, he could be describing that, that oppression. I'm seeing the oppression and it's actually the person that's doing the oppressing that has been bribed into doing it. So they're oppressing because they've received a bribe and that's why they're treating this person. So it could, it's not, you're not exactly sure which of those two it is, but still there is this temptation to accept a bribe. And then we have a situation where he says here that we are tempted to be impatient and angry. So you put these things together, and to me, you're just looking for what is the common thread here in these examples of receiving a bribe, of viewing oppression and becoming just almost stir-crazy that you, 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 you hate it, you want to set it right. In fact, the temptation might be to just bypass God's justice and actually get ahead of where God is and try to take revenge or to try to set this thing right when it's not really your responsibility in that moment to set things right. You have this temptation to accept a bribe and you have this temptation to be impatient and angry. And the common thread to me seems to be in the solution to the sin being done in all those examples. And the solution or the thing that is needed is self-restraint. In contrast to what you might feel or what might feel good in the moment, right? Because in those moments, right, when we see oppression, what feels good is I'm going to set it right, right? When the bribe comes, the temptation is to do, to accept it, thinking somehow this is a shortcut, right? I'm going to bypass God's wisdom and I'm going to accept the bribe because that's how I'm going to advance, I'm going to set this right. I'm going to advance in this way. I'm going to take a shortcut. And when, when I get in a situation where I'm tempted to be irritable or, or to be angry, it's going to feel good if I act on that, right? But that's not what's needed. That's not what's best. In fact, Proverbs 29.11 says this, A fool always loses his temper, but a wise man holds it back. Only the fool looks to the present benefits of his corrupt actions and forgets to think about how things will turn out in the end. Only the fool thinks that a momentary lashing out and shouting and letting loose 
a torrent of anger and frustration is better for him or better for her than godly self-restraint. And, 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 and admit it, right? I mean, it, you enjoy that little feeling of superiority, right? When, when, you, when that perfectly timed, well-aimed barb of sarcasm sinks home, right? <laughs> you enjoy it for a moment. But is it good for you? That's the question. Is it good for you? What is good for you isn't a flaming, insane anger at injustice. What is good for you is not a, um, a, a, a lust, a satisfying greed of, of a bribe or a passing pleasure of an impatient glare or an angry jibe. And contrary to what psychology says, anger and venting your frustration is not cleansing. Right? It's not cleansing. I mean, psychologist says you, you need to get that out. I mean, if you feel that way, if you're frustrated, if you're upset with injustice, if you're angry with that person, you gotta, you got to let it go. But it's, that is not cleansing. It is habit-forming. That's what it is. It's habit-forming. You do that, and, and then you do it again, and then you do it again, but it's like an addictive drug. Every time we use it, anger its chemicals work to further our dependence upon them. It, be, it begins to take up residence. It becomes a part and parcel of who we are. It, it, be, it begins to own us. But Solomon says, what is good for a man is self-restraint. Verse 8 you, it could be translated this way. Length of spirit is better than height of spirit. And when it's talking about length of spirit, it's, it's another way of, of uh, it's, it's, it's trying to to give us that concept of long-suffering, right? Length of spirit is better than height of spirit, which is why it's translated haughty, which is, which is a term for high or lofty. It's just saying, it's a reference to pride. So he's saying what is good for you is patience and humility. Patience and humility enable a person to wait for the outcome of a matter and to witness the truth that the end is better than the beginning. But anger finds fuel for its fire in impatience and pride. So amid all of the things that we see, all all the evils that we see and experience in life under the sun, we are tempted to use folly to fight folly. Right? That is what's intuitive. That is what the world does. The world fights foolishness with more foolishness. And we do this at times, right? We get worn out with, with the mixed messages. We get frustrated or tired or despairing, and we join in. We foolishly join in. But we know that we're using folly to overcome folly when impatient pride and hasty anger become our weapons of choice. The grace of wisdom doesn't fight pride with more pride, and the grace of wisdom doesn't fight anger with more anger. I love what Zach Eswine says here in his book, Recovering Eden. He says, pride and anger are like Stalin's communists waiting to deliver Poland out of the hands of Hitler's Nazis. (laughs) What looks like a rescue only recovers and repeats the oppression. So we think that anger and we think that pride is going to deliver us from this moment, but when we act out in that way and we don't exercise self-restraint, it's like we're being delivered from one oppressor 
to another oppressor. Then he says this, when God's people respond to the folly they find under the sun by becoming foolish themselves, there is little wonder why it can seem that God is nowhere to be found in the news, our neighborhoods, or our daily toil. We become like firefighters who, upon entering a burning building, disdain the water hoses and instead turn confidently to blow torches and try helplessly to douse what blazes. So instead of grabbing what's there for us to put out the fire, we actually grab our blowtorches of anger and pride and say, I'll put the fire out with my blowtorch. And so we're dousing a fire with a blowtorch. It's foolishness and folly. So what is good for us? Self-restraint, humility, patience, trusting in the Lord with all of our thinking that God will judge our good and wise Christ-like attitude. So you can think about it, what we've said so far in this way. Jesus had a right view of death, right? Christ had a right view of death. He didn't avoid death. He wasn't afraid of death. He saw through death to the glory on the other side. That's what Hebrews 12 tells us, right? He saw beyond the cross to the glory. Jesus also understood the value of painful wisdom because Jesus himself is the one that gave us Matthew 18, right? And explain to us how important it is to give and to receive a loving but sometimes painful reproof. And when Jesus experienced the injustices of a corrupt court system and a a state-approved murder, Jesus didn't go insane with frustration. In fact, 1 Peter 2.23 says this, that while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him, God, who judges righteously. When Satan tried to bribe Jesus into worshiping him, Jesus turned him down flat. When Jesus was tempted to respond to irritating and incompetent people with impatience, whether they were small children or distraught fathers, annoying foreign women asking for a healing, or thick-headed disciples, Jesus proved that he was gentle and humble in spirit. So we could summarize these first three things in this way. What is good for a man? To be like Christ. (laughs) To be like Christ. To have a right attitude about death. To have a right attitude and, and perspective about convicting or correcting wisdom. And to have a right perspective about self restraint. So those are three of them, three of the six. Uh, we'll come back next week and we'll look at the remaining three and, and finish up down through uh, at least through verse verse 14. All right, any, uh, any comments? So, okay, folks, thank you for your time.